Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 18, we notice that we, this little phrase here that says, Little children, it is the last hour. Now, from last week's study, we know that John uses various terms for little children. He'll use technia, little born ones, or paideia, which means those who are new and just learning. And in this section, he uses that word paideia. He says, little children are those of you who are growing and learning in the faith. He reminds them of something that they've heard before. He says, it is the last hour. Now, we know that this book was written some oh, 1,900, 2,000 years ago. So we know that he wasn't speaking about 60 minutes. <laughs> he was using an expression that had, been cut, had become very popular in the New Testament as it expressed not just a period of time, that is to say 1,900 years, 2,000 years, But it expresses an era and all that is caught up in that era and the ideas and the concepts that are prevalent in that era. Uh, This week, my daughter was on the Internet studying the Dust Bowl days. And I kept looking through the Internet to see if there were pictures of me with a handkerchief in West Texas going, Hey, y'all, it's us. But the Dust Bowl days were, were recognized by a drought an extreme wind and dust, such a drought that you would have just clouds of pillowing dust on the horizon early in the morning, eventually covering the whole landscape, so much so that you couldn't see anything. Therefore, you call it the Dust Bowl days. Well, we are living in an era, a period of time, that Scripture calls or titles the last hour. Now, it is the last hour because it punctuates an idea or a progression that God has started from the beginning, beginning in the garden, beginning with the building of a nation and him speaking to the world through the nation of Israel, the temple period. And finally, you have this period that we would call or marked by the age of what I would call the age of Jesus. In fact, it's the year A.D., Amino Domini. If I mispronounce that, please. Did I get that right, Sean? Okay, good. <laughs> Sorry. Correct me in private. Thank you. Uh, you can reserve all of the Internet corrections. I've got a Latin student right here who will gladly correct me after the service. Thank you, Sean. It is the year of the Lord. And that is the advent of this unique person on the page of history. One Jesus Christ. It is an age marked by the life and the death of this person that we call the God-man, the theanthropic nature of Jesus Christ presents to us not only a life that is led or filled by the Spirit of God descending from heaven, condescending to live in human flesh, but ascending to a cross, a shameful death, publicly 
but thereby proclaiming that that death and that blood is efficacious for the salvation of mankind. It's a totally new era. It's an era of salvation. It's a period of time where there is a chance for humanity lost and on its way into an eternity without God, punishment away from God. Now there is an era that says, whosoever will, let him come. It is the age of salvation. It's also an age of grace. That is to say that all of your sins and all of the reasons that God has to condemn you can be superseded by His condescending love coming as a human and expressing to us and giving us the probability of now being reconciled to Him, being titled blameless before the God of heaven by the merits of Jesus. It's also an age of gospel preaching. You know, the world looks on, and it tells us in Corinthians that the world sees our preaching as foolishness. And I think it looks pretty foolish if I wasn't a believer and I was looking on and I'd say, what are you people doing gathering into a barn, a very nice carpeted barn, but yet a very big space, listening to someone wag their tongue and shake their finger? Well, because we've come to know that this era is marked by the proclamation of the truth, either privately in your daily life or publicly in a forum that reaches millions of people. It's the proclamation of the good news that there is hope for humanity. And then it is an age that is punctuated or marked by an expectancy of his return. It is the last hour. We believe that there's no further stages ahead of us. The Lord Jesus right now, we believe, could return for His church. Many people call it the rapture. Harpazo in Greek, to be caught up immediately, suddenly in the air with the Lord, ready for His return. People who live like that and who live in an era like that mark the fact that we are in a process of working in this period of time. Many of you know, and you've heard me say this before, but I grew up in a farming and ranching community. So that means that most of my early exposure to the world as a young child was weeds, cattle, horses, and tractors, and a hoe handle. That was the main ingredients of life as far as I was concerned. And we spent most of our time in the summer in the field. And being at an age, they didn't mind putting kids to work at a young age, by the way. In West Texas, I don't think there were any child labor laws. I think the only child labor law was that kids get out there and work. You know, I mean, that was it. So you'd have the farmer in a pickup drop you off at dawn in the field with a hoe, a sack of sandwiches, and a jug of water. And... You know, usually it wasn't a real fancy car, not particularly nice guy. And you'd spend all your day out there working. And it was hard labor, but yet it was worthwhile. There was a pay at the end. But toward the end of the day, I can tell you, I was never so happy to see one man than to see that cloud of dust rolling down the turn row or old dusty dirt roads and see that pickup coming and all I could think of, I'm over here, I'm over here, come get me. We live in an age that 
looks expectantly to the return of Jesus. Yes, there is fulfillment in this life, but we've had a taste of glory beyond and we want His return looking to see Him. Now that's the positive side. But it's also an age that is marked by opposition. First of all, it's an age that's marked by opposition to Jesus. Um, You notice the phrase antichrist. Anti uh, literally can mean not only against, but it can also mean instead of. So not only do you have those who are opposed to the works of Christ, but those who pose themselves as workers of Christ or instead of Him, opposing Him. First of all, this is what they oppose. They oppose His work. God in the flesh. They oppose His cross, what He has done in paying man's, for man's sins. They oppose His message, the belief in being saved by the blood of Jesus only. And they oppose His church. And the words of Jesus are very telling. He says, if they hated Me, surely they're going to hate you also. Just a show of hands. Do you feel, as you go throughout your day in this world, do you feel that people applaud your Christianity, those who are non-believers, or that you live in a world that is somewhat hostile to your faith? For For the most part, the world is hostile to the faith. There is a rebellion against God in mankind. Keep your finger here and look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Whenever the true light comes on the horizon, then you have all sorts of false lights who shine in comparison to, hoping to overthrow, but this present darkness of this world is not, as it says in the Gospel of John, able to comprehend or overthrow the light of of God. But we live in a world, I would say, that stays in a constant state of rebellion to the things of God. The world is not that open. Now, with that... Mankind is not the only one who is in rebellion since the advent of Jesus. You also have a satanic rebellion in place. And we notice this, that there is not only persons of Antichrist, Antichristoid, the the plural form of Antichrist, but you have this one particular Antichrist who is spoken of here. There have been many antichrists who have gone out into the world. And all you really need to be as an antichrist is someone who stands against the work and ministry and life of Jesus Christ. I think of the old punk rock song, I am an antichrist. And at the end of my life, that would probably be the song I would most like to forget if I had actually written those words. 
but people are opposed to him and become in a very generic sense anti-Christian or anti-Christ. But there is this unique person who is on the horizon, and we will deal with him in greater length in chapter 4. But I think we need to touch on him tonight because he is someone who causes a spark of intrigue whenever you read that word, don't you? Whenever you hear that term antichrist, you think, wait a minute, who who is that? Keep your finger here in 1 John and look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. We don't have time to get into it tonight, but he's also mentioned in Revelation chapter 13. But in this book, he's spoken of as the man of sin or the son of perdition. Early on in the first century, these words were written to a startling little um, church that was beginning He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless a falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. Now, the first reference we have of this type of person, uh, we find over in the book of Daniel, I believe chapter 8 and chapter 11, and you can look those up later tonight. It's not necessarily good bedtime reading, but it's very thrilling and invigorating. Um, But he's spoken of, prophesied by Daniel, and about 200 years after his prophecy concerning this man who would come in to the temple and cause an abomination that causes desolation, you had a historical figure come on the scene by the name of Antiochus IV. He came from the Seleucid dynasty, and it was the restructured, broken-up Greece empire that had been founded by Alexander the Great but then had been broken up after his death. In the province of Palestine or in Judea, he had had problems with certain priests from the temple. And so he made a visit in, I believe, 167 B.C. to the temple in Jerusalem and began a work that fulfilled a prophecy that was spoken of by Daniel causing what was known as the abomination that causes desolation. And that is, you know, in the temple that was erected by the Jews there in Jerusalem, that there was an outer court, there was a court of the priests, and then finally toward the center you have the Holy of Holies. And and there was a sense of separation from this terrible and great and holy and perfect God. And no one would think... No one in the nation would possibly think about desecrating anything that was holy or connected to God. Well, here comes this pagan ruler who comes in and he steals and takes away some of the treasures of the temple. And then right in the middle of the place, he erects a Greek pagan god and sets up a place of worship 
in the holy place, in the temple of the Lord. It was an abomination that caused desolation and trouble in the land. In fact, it was the one event that helped spark the Maccabean revolt. It was later overturned. But he becomes a figure for us of this man who is yet to come. Because over in Matthew chapter 24, I believe it's verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, in in my vernacular, get out of there, flee and get out of the place, because great trouble will come upon the land. In fact, um, in the program or of eschatology that we hold to here, especially myself, very uh, dispensational, we believe that that period of time comes in what is known as the seven years of tribulation, a period of peace brought on by this Antichrist, by this false peace. And then at some point, right in the middle, he enters into the holy place, into the reconstructed temple, and says, I am God and begins to impose worship upon himself. And from that point on, there is great trouble and tribulation in the nation of Israel. This guy represents many antichrists who have come before, who oppose God, and who oppose his people. But yet, there is one big fella, one main guy, who is yet on the horizon, who will turn this world upside down for a period of time. These antichrists oppose the work of Jesus and hope to replace it, but all they're able to do is present a weak imitation of the real power of God. All right, look with me back at 1 John. We have discussed... In our opening statements, this whole idea of this age and the present atmosphere that we're living in. But now he makes a shift and he lays out for us tonight, and we're going to break these passages of scriptures up just a little bit and group them in a natural grouping. But he, he lets us know the marks of false believers or religious fakes And then he gives us the marks of a true believer and juxtaposes the two with each other. Let's look first at the marks of a religious fake, the company of liars and leavers. I'd like to read to you some very sad words that I found, or I didn't find it. It was actually Coy Trammell, who has been my secret research internet person for the last couple of weeks. Thanks a lot. Coy, I'll go ahead and steal your reward right now. But he found a little excerpt from a chat room in 2003 from a young man who was leaving his faith. And he says these words, I have left religion and with it left my faith. I never so clearly realized how much I needed my faith growing up. It was a crutch. I felt no one could take away or dispute, or interrupt, or beat it down. It was my stronghold, and I have to say that it got me through some of the hardest times of my life. One thing that I could never never did, though, was provide answers, answers that I so desperately wanted. As the difficult things continued, the rationale for faith 
seemed to disappear in my life? How could I have faith if these things kept going on unanswered? I wasn't willing to wait. For they said that in heaven it would be, but I don't believe that to be so. What small belief I have in heaven doesn't help. And I don't think God would make me wait. My heaven starts now. My life is here. My questions are real. And after all, as they say, who will have time to question in heaven? We'll all be too busy worshiping. Someone has weighed the faith in the balance and left. And one of the true marks of an unbeliever the, the mark of someone who has a false faith in Christ is, we find this in verse 19, is that they leave the faith. Look at me at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be manifest that none of them were of us. Notice that phrase. They went out from us. Now, what does this show us? One simple truth, that they were not of us. Leaving shows the content of their heart. Now, this evening, after the service, almost every one of us, and I hope it's every one of us, will leave this building and go home. I hope you realize that He's not talking about that. I don't want to see you here in the middle of the night and when I come in first thing in tomorrow morning and say, Hey Dave, we're not leaving yet. We're still here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a departure from the faith that was once for all delivered to the, to the believers, to us. Keep your finger here and look with me in the Gospel of John chapter 6. Jesus presents one of his most controversial messages early on in his ministry. So strange and controversial that at some point I quote him with these words. He says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Pretty tough message to hear. But he had great throngs and crowds of people following him. And he had admonished them and said to them, You're only following me because of the bread and the food that I provided for you earlier on the hillside. But I tell you that there's real bread here. There's real food. And he began to preach this message about his blood and his flesh. And in verse 60, he says these words. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself what his disciples complained about, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no man can come unto me unless it is granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back 
and walked with him no more. It's as if to say when they really figured out what he was saying, when he spoke in plain language so that they could really understand, they said, I get it. I I get where you're going now. This is too hard for me. And they left. It was an obvious rejection of Jesus and his work and his word and message. When people, some people, really figure out what we're saying, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, He came to die for the sins of mankind, they say, wait a minute, I'm out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I didn't come to church to be condemned today. In fact, I've heard this before. I came to be uplifted and encouraged. I get plenty of discouragement in the world and I want to be uplifted. Who wants to hear about sin and repentance and the desperate plight of humanity? When they actually understand the truth, they pick up their ball and they leave. It's a sign of a false believer. There are very different types of soil that the seed of the gospel falls on. Over in Matthew chapter 13, we find the parable of the sower. It's not a parable of somebody who has a needle and thread and they're mending clothes or garments. A sower is someone who plants out in the field. It's the story of a farmer. And there are four types of soil that are represented here. The first type of soil that's represented in this parable is the hard, crusty ground. And he said the seed fell upon this hard ground and it didn't have a chance to go in deep. And the birds came immediately and grabbed up the seed, the seed being the gospel, and took it away. And then there was the next soil, which was the shallow soil, that it fell among the stony ground, which it sprung up immediately, but there was no chance for the roots to go in deep. So therefore, when the sun came out, it was spoiled and the plant withered immediately. And then you have the soil that is filled with weeds, that the seed went in and as it tries to grow, It has no chance because all of the non-productive weeds and plants gather around the productive plant and begin to choke out and deplete and take away, diverting all the nutrients and resources that are needed for that plant to grow. And then finally, you have the fourth type of ground, which is characterized as good soil. And it produces, as Jesus said, a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. You never really know what will happen in the heart of a person as the gospel of Jesus enters into the the soil of their life. Many people live very hard lives. Many people come to church and they hear the gospel and they say, this is exciting. But you look around the corner someday and they say, look, I don't want to have anything to do with it. It just got too hard. Some of my friends left me and I'm out of here. I have nothing to do with it. And then there are others who have remained for a long time, but you see just very little growth. That is to say that they may have been a Christian for 30 years, but you don't see a lot of growth and development. Sort of like when I see one of my my sons, I hope that they grow into a mature adult. I hope that they're not living at the house 
in their mid-30s. However, if they are, I'm sure they'll be helpful with the lawn. But I hope they go out and do something. But then you have those who are open, good soil. And when that seed lands in that that soil, it just begins to produce and to produce and to produce. And in every church, you have every one of those types of people represented. And he says, they went out from us that it might be manifested or shown to everyone that they really weren't of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we hate them. In fact, it should be an indicator, a red flag to us, a big sign on the sideway, on the highway that says, hey, you should go share the gospel with that person. You know, you may have thought that they had a strong walk, but they left the faith and they're out there struggling. Now's your opportunity to go once again, a rescue operation and to share the gospel with them. But there was a little bit different environment that he was speaking of here. He had a group of people known as the Gnostics. And it comes from the word Gnosis, which they purportedly had this unique twist on life. They carried many of the philosophies of Greece and Rome. And so when Christianity came along, they began to apply all of their great Gnosis, their knowledge, to this very dry and rudimentary religion known as the Christian faith. And they proposed to the early Ephesian believers that they had this special knowledge that was even greater and you need to come listen to us. That's too simple. You really need to understand from us. And Paul is saying in a very practical, God-honoring, positive sense, this group of know-it-alls, this Gnosis group, really left us Because they were never a part of us in the first place. Now I want to make a little statement here before I move on. And that is this. I form it in a question. Can true believers leave a church and go to another? The answer is an easy answer. It means it's yes. This is speaking about those who are in opposition to the very central faith that we have. But you as a believer... If you decide, well, you know what? God is calling me to another fellowship or I'm moving to another town or my wife goes to this other fellowship and I want to spend time with her and be together as a family or my husband vice versa or or I like the music or, you know, whatever it may be, but I feel God's presence there. Can a person leave the particular fellowship they're in and go to another? Absolutely. You need to go exactly where God wants you to go. And we as believers and good brothers and sisters, if we have a brother and sister who says, you know, I'm going to go down to the church down the street. This is not our opportunity to go, well, I'll say hi to you, but I'll leave you with a sense of shun because you've left us. Please get over it. If it is a place where the gospel is being preached, Say hallelujah. I'm glad. Let's maintain our fellowship. Let's continue what God has started. The most important thing that you need to be asking yourself is, am I seeking a new church or home or am I leaving the faith? Everyone needs to be an active participant in a local fellowship. Okay. A mark of a false believer 
is they leave, they depart from the faith. But look at verse 22 of 1 John chapter 2. They not only leave, but they lie about the faith. Verse 22 says these words. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He acknowledges that the Son, he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. They deny the truth about Jesus Christ. It is a mark of every cult in existence in history and today. Pseudo-Christian cults. They will affirm certain things about Jesus. However, they will all deny the very salient truths of this statement. He talks about that Jesus is the Christ. That is, this person, Jesus, became a man, God in human form, condescended to be with us, lived among us, but he was also the fulfillment of the old prophecy given by Moses many years ago about an anointed one or a Messiah who would come and save his people. And herein lies the, the, the kernel of the denial. People will say Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a prophet. But the cults and the false and those who deny will not acquiesce to the truth that Jesus was deity, God in the flesh. They will always have some kind of weird twist. They'll have some twist upon the truth or the simple biblical teaching. They'll deny the virgin birth, the fact that he's a man. They will deny that he's the son of God, his deity. And they will deny the fact that he is the anointed one, the one specific man in history who has come to pay for the sins of the whole world. Now, there's something that you need to notice here. He emphatically states that Whoever rejects the Son doesn't get the Father also. There has always been this movement that says, well, I can't stand Jesus and that whole Christianity stuff, but I love God. And John says, "Uh uh-uh, you don't get out that quick. I've got you in a corner. In fact, we understand from Scripture that this person, Jesus Christ, and the Father, by His own admission, are one, one in essence, one in fellowship, one in nature. And so he says, the obvious, you can't have one without the other. And that means that if you reject Jesus, you reject the Father also, and there's no way around it. Listen to the words of the Father. He says in Matthew 3, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In John 6, 28, he says, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? They were asking this of Jesus. And he answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus makes another statement in here that I and my father are one. You cannot divide the two. But the false who lie about the faith will always 
make the distinction and will always try to denigrate the deity of Jesus. Not only do they lie, but look at verse 26 back in 1 John. They deceive others. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. You There's an old statement. I think it, it fits this portion that says, misery loves company. I don't know what it is, but growing up, whenever I had a friend who was doing something stupid, they would spend all of their effort, at least half of their effort, trying to get me to do what they're doing. Phrases like, come on, jump. You won't get hurt. Come on, throw that rock through the window. Nobody will, no, nobody's looking. Nobody will ever find out. Come on, have that drink. Your mom won't smell it on your breath when you get home. That's supposed to be a joke, some of you guys. Moms have breath smell radar that has a two-mile radius. I could come into the house at 11.39 and be out with friends and doing things I'm not necessarily supposed to do. And she was usually smelling for cigarette smoke or the other type of objects. And she could know when I pulled up into the driveway, her nose and all of her senses would perk up. And I would creak in as slow as I could, opening the door, knowing that she's fast asleep. And I hear, Dave, why don't you come in my room for a minute? I'd like to talk to you. And there was always the kiss to try to get close to your face or something. Like, who kisses their teenage kid at 11.30 at night? They try to deceive others. They're not satisfied in their own deception. They have to bring others along. All right. Let's turn from here and look at the marks of a true believer. The first mark of a true believer, and we've gone over this quite thoroughly thus far, we find in verse 18, and that is the little fra- the phrase, little children. The mark of a true believer, first of all, is that he's born of God. He has the DNA, the genetic link to heaven. He is, has spiritual DNA living inside of him from God. He is a part of the family. But then look with me at verse 20. Believers also have this very unique thing known as an anointing from the Holy One. He also mentions this in verse 27. The word that is used there for anointing is charisma. And charisma doesn't necessarily mean God gives you a really great personality and a winning smile. It is speaking of a power and a strength and what the old preachers used to call an unction from God Himself. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where He says, A power and strength will come upon you. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you have this group of disciples who are bummed out and freaked out and who have 
some apprehension of the truth. But when the Spirit comes upon them, you see this powerful dynamic which enables them to do things that are supernatural, things that are obviously connected to heaven and to God's strength. Now, again, this was in opposition to the Gnostics who had their own special anointing. They take out their little oil, hum a few words, throw down on you. Here you go, buddy. You have our anointing, which was nothing. It was just for some puffed up guy who said he knew something. But he says, you, in contradistinction, have an anointing from God, a special power and unction from the Lord himself. Not only the believers, true believers are born of God or have an anointing, but in verse 20 and 21, we also note that the true believer has a knowledge of the truth. Look at me at the second half of verse 20. He says, You know all things, and I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Jesus tells it very well in John chapter 16. We won't read there tonight. But he declares unto them that he is sending them a spirit, the spirit of truth, which he, when he comes, this was prior to Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> he told the disciples, when he comes, he will take what is mine and he will proclaim All that is mine, everything that I have, all that I am, he will proclaim it unto you so that you'll remember and I will continue and remain with you. The believer has this very unique knowledge of God. It is supernatural and it is from the Holy Spirit. Now look with me at verse 27. We're skipping around here, but it makes sense. Verse 27 has been a controversial verse, so let's read it together. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is, has taught you, will abide in him. Now, you may be thinking... Well, you know, Dave, if I would have read this passage of Scripture, I wouldn't have had to come to church tonight. He is not saying that we do not need Bible teachers or people who instruct us in the faith. In fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and also Ephesians chapter 4 that teaching and preaching are a part of the gift cluster that God gives to the church for the mutual edification and the building up of itself in love. So we know that he's not negating something that he's already previously stated. But what he's saying is, is that you do not need some special Gnostic knowledge. TV abounds with these things. Call a day and order your prayer cloth and hold it on your forehead as you read these scriptures and listen to my words and you will receive the special knowledge and special word from God. Now, I know this may seem somewhat offensive if I'm bringing this out in public, but you know, every time I hear these things, I am offended by them because you have the Holy Spirit. You and I have the word of God and we have access to this truth on a day-to-day basis. Right? Amen. 
Now, God may gift some of us with teaching and explaining the Scriptures like He would uh, gift some people with evangelism, like He would gift many of you with the ministry of hospitality and helps and mercy and so forth, and we build each other up with that. But if there was no one else around and all you had was the Spirit of God, you wouldn't need anyone to come to you with some special spooky knowledge. You have the real truth of the gospel abiding in you. All right. The true believer also abides not only in Christ, but in his gospel. In verse 24, he says, Therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning, that if you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also abide in the Son and in the Father. And in verse 25, we see that the true believer also not only abides in his word and his gospel, but he has the promise of eternal life. One day, all of this stuff, this flesh, this eating, this breathing, this pain, this sorrow, this challenge will end and we enter into eternal life with the living God. And right now, we live a fabulous life. I, I'm, I'm excited about the life I get to live with Jesus Christ right now. And so in a sense, it's all this and eternity on top of it. The real believer has this promise. We'll close with verse 28 and 29. The benefits abiding in the Lord. Verse 28, we have the confidence at His coming. And in verse 29, we have the benefits of a righteous life. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. That word abide is used repeatedly throughout this chapter. We've mentioned it before. It is the Greek word meno, which means to abide with richly, to take up residence with. And it pictures with us the idea of living in residency with Jesus Christ. I want to close with just a little section from one of my favorite booklets. It's called My Christ Hearts... My Christ. Sorry. You guys let me preach up here. I, I, I don't know. My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger. And I heard it read to us on a communion evening 18 years ago by Skip Heitzig sitting right over there. And I'll never forget it. We don't have time to read through the whole thing, but what I do remember, I want you to know, is that he writes a little allegory, a little picture, if you will, of a life that is representative of inviting Jesus to come and live with you in your house. And so he has the study the mind, the workplace, the rec room, the hall closet that's filled with something gross that needs to be cleaned out. And then finally, he has the final solution here, and I'd like to read it to you. It's the section titled Transferring Transferring the Title. Then I thought came to me. I said to myself, I've been trying to keep this heart of mine clean and available for Christ, but it's too hard. It's hard work. 
I start in one room and no sooner that I've cleaned it, I discover another room is dirty. I begin on the second room and the first one is already dusty again. I'm getting tired and trying to maintain a clean heart and an obedient life. I just am not up to it. Suddenly I ask, Lord, is there a possibility you would be willing to manage the whole house and operate it for me just as you did in my closet and every other room? Could I give you the responsibility of keeping my heart, what ought to be and what myself ought to be doing? I could see his face light up as he replied, I'd love to. This is exactly what I have come to do. You can live out the Christian life in your own strength. That is possible. Let me do it for you. Because you think it's possible, but it's impossible. That's the only way it will really work. But he added slowly, I'm not the owner of this house. Remember, I'm here as your guest. I have no authority to take charge since the property is not mine. In a flash, it all became clear. Excitedly, I exclaimed, Lord, you have been my guest and I've been trying to play the host. From now on, you're going to be the owner and master of the house and I'm going to be the servant. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house, describing its assets and liabilities, its condition, location, and situation. Then rushing back to him, I eagerly signed it over, giving title to him alone for time and eternity. Dropping to my knees, I presented it to him. Here it is, all that I am and have forever. Now you run the house. Just let me stay with you as a houseboy and friend. He took my life that day, and I give you my word, there's no better way to live the Christian life. He knows how to keep it and use it. A deep peace settled down on my soul that has remained, and I am his and he is mine forever. May Christ settle down and be at home as your Lord in your heart also. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.